just as far as where I got some of the information for tonight, you guys have seen this book before, Love That Lasts, uh, with Gary and Betsy Ricucci. Uh, very good. He had a really great chapter on resolving conflict in here, so I drew from that. And then if you guys came to the conference, you would have gotten this, Communication and Conflict Resolution from Stuart Scott. And last time we met, I talked about the communication and drew some from this. Well, tonight I am drawing from the conflict resolution half of this little booklet and very, very helpful. I also uh, did get a little bit of information from, uh, from Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. And that's really more in the context of the church body and how to work out differences in the church in general but still really great principles. And I did, not, I did not draw as much from that book, but still very, very helpful. So anyways, my initial little example here does come from Love That Lasts. So he writes this, the couple sitting across from me looked like they would rather be in separate galaxies, not just separate chairs. Even before a word was uttered, the distance in their body posture clearly indicated an even greater distance in their hearts. As they began to speak in very controlled and measured words, a familiar story unfolded. She wanted his comfort, affection, and leadership. He wanted her respect, affection, and submission. These are reasonable, godly desires, things the Bible commands husband and wives to give one another. This couple was accurate in identifying them as legitimate wishes left unfulfilled. In their minds, this was precisely the problem they had come to talk about. Yet the icy wall between them had not been formed by a failure to fulfill biblical roles. Other problems, ones they could not yet clearly see, had created this separation. In their marriage, as in countless others, the heart of the matter wasn't that each spouse was not getting. Let me read that again. The heart of the matter wasn't what each spouse was not getting. And I want you to pay very close attention to this next line. I'm going to actually refer to this again later, but I want you to hear what he says here. He says, the real problem was what they thought and felt and believed about what they were not getting and how they behaved as a result of those thoughts, emotions, and beliefs. Because if we are thinking wrong thoughts, believing wrong thoughts, we are going to act on those wrong things. So a wrong interpretation of circumstances is then going to lead to wrong communication and to sinful actions. So he goes on. He says, he would come home from work and go right to the computer. She wanted his care and attention. She would often find fault and criticize his decisions. He wanted her enthusiasm and support. They expressed their demands and disappointments with angry and critical words. They had become deeply stuck in a pattern of arrogant anger, harsh language, and selfish withdrawal. The ultimate reason for their ongoing conflict was not his lack of affection or her lack of submission. So he says, read that again. So I'm going to read that again. The ultimate reason for their ongoing conflict was not his lack of affection or her lack of submission. These certainly were important problems to be addressed, but they did not cause the conflict. So what was the cause? When one spouse was disappointed by the other, the response was anger and unkindness rather than love and self-control. And husband and wife each justified his or her sinful response to the other. 
So then he goes on and he says, you don't have to be married long to be familiar with such a conflict. Consider the newlyweds, imagine who he must be talking about here. Consider the newlyweds who, while on their honeymoon, got into such a disagreement that the bride got out of the car while it was moving. The groom had to drive alongside her down the road, pleading with her through the rolled down window to get back in. Yes, even on the honeymoon. Unbelievable. So clearly he's talking about his own experience there. So it didn't take them very long to end up in a serious conflict, obviously. Maybe some of you can relate. <clears throat> so what is conflict? What does that word actually mean? And Stuart Scott gives a very good definition. So I'm going to give you his definition here. He says, when we talk about conflict, we are not talking about having a difference of opinion with someone or disagreeing with someone. We are not even talking about being offended or offending someone. These things can happen without conflict. So he's giving maybe a little bit of a different understanding to conflict than what we would think because conflict is more than just having a difference of opinion or a disagreement. So he goes on and he says, the Latin word from which we get the word conflict means to strike. Conflict is a common military term, which means to fight against. When two people have a conflict, they may have a physical fight and or a verbal fight, but both people are involved and against one another. Conflict then is when both parties sin against one another in their communication and or in their actions and are in opposition to one another. So we're going to kind of work through what is conflict, how can we disagree without having a conflict, and all those different kind of nuances tonight as we work through this. So he, uh, well, actually, nobody. Conflict begins, I don't think this is on your outline. Conflict begins with differences of opinion. So, okay, it begins. So you don't necessarily have to have a conflict when you have a difference of, of opinion. And I'm going to just give you some random ideas of ways that we might have disagreements with our husbands, different things. So one person likes it, one person likes it warm in the house, the other likes it cool in the house. You can have a, dis a disagreement on that, you can have a difference of opinion on that and not end up in an argument and a fight and you know, going to blows over it. One person likes to listen to music in the car, the other person likes it quiet. This is why that was one for us. I like it quiet, he likes the music. Uh, one person likes to go to bed early, the other person likes to stay up late. One person wants to get a dog, the other person wants to get a cat. Very thankful we never wanted a cat. We're dog people. <laughs> One person keeps a tidy house. The other person tends to be more messy. One person is careful with entertainment and influences. The other person is a little less careful. One parent prefers because, of course, then what happens when we're married? Generally, we have children, and then these disagreements then become involved with the children as well. So one parent prefers constant involvement in sports. The other parent prefers a break. One parent wants to homeschool, the other parent prefers public schooling. One person is a spender, the other is a saver. Oh, that never goes well, does it? 
but you can have differences of opinion and not have a conflict. Keep that in mind. <clears throat> Dif different preferences with vacation destinations, different opinions on where to spend the holidays like Christmas, Thanksgiving, how to discipline the children, when, where, and how to have family devotions. The list can go on and on and on. The opportunities that we have for differences of opinions and potentially then if we don't handle those differences right, they end up in conflict and that's what we want to avoid. We want to acknowledge in our marriages that we are two entirely different people from two entirely different backgrounds that have come together and now are trying to live together and we need to be able to do it without being sinful. And it can be done, but we have to understand what is at the root driving our, our desires that then become sinful. We can have differences of opinion and disagreements without being sinful. So remember what I read at the beginning. He said this, the real problem is what we think and feel and believe about what we are not getting and how we behave as a result of those thoughts, emotions, and beliefs. So how we, what does he say? Think, feel, and believe about the things that we want are the things that eventually drive us to a sinful response into conflict. And that's why we have to think rightly, we have to believe rightly, we have to feel rightly about these things so that we don't end up in sinful conflict. Conflicts arise when we want our own desire to the point that we become proud and selfish with our desires, demanding them above our willingness to glorify God and our love and concern for the other person. So just to remind you, we've looked at these verses, I think, before, but of course now as we're thinking through conflict, okay, so let's remind ourselves of these verses. So Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from what? Selfishness and empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And that's where we get ourselves in trouble because we start looking out for our own personal interest more than the interest of our husband. And then, of course, James, he brings more to bear on this to help us understand. So James 4, 1 and 2 says this. What is the source of quarrels and what? Conflicts among you. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So conflicts arise when we want to fulfill our own pleasures, satisfy our own lusts more than we regard the interest of our husband. In marriage, if we are both husband and wife, both seeking to satisfy our own pleasure rather than each other, what's going to happen? You have two people at odds with one another, and it's going to ultimately end up in sinful conflict. So now entering onto your outline, capital A, steps that result in conflict. So this actually comes from Love That Lasts, and I really appreciated his steps because he broke it down really well. And I thought it was beneficial just to helping you think through 
what is it that, how do, how do we go from a disagreement to a sinful conflict? Like what are the steps involved? And maybe just being able to think that through a little bit, breaking it down will be helpful even in your own heart. So number one is desire. Conflict becomes a possibility when a human heart carries a desire. Now he says possibility. So it doesn't mean that it's ultimately going to be a conflict. It means that there's a possibility that it could be. He says, I would like him to be more open and take more initiative and leadership in our communication. Or I would like her to understand that sometimes I just don't have a lot to say. So husband and wife, their desires, clearly different from one another. So there is nothing necessarily wrong with either of these desires. So far, no sin, no problem. It's okay to have different desires. So then number two, we have disagreement or disappointment. When our desire meets with disagreement or disappointment, we start to see what sort of hold it has on us. If we say to ourselves, I can't believe he doesn't want to talk with me right now, or doesn't she realize I'm tired when I get home from work and just want some time alone? So you have those two different desires going on and now they're starting to knock heads. And that's when we have a problem. Here, desire has begun to reveal a craving or a lust or a sinful passion. You know the line has been crossed when you are no longer counting your spouse as more significant or more important than yourself. So we've gone from desire to disagreement or disappointment because that desire, that lust is really bigger than it should be. So then we have number three, deserving. Our sinful self-orientation begins to look at this unmet desire as something we deserve. Now it's elevated to even a higher degree. I've been home all day with the children. Don't I deserve his attention in some adult conversation? How many of you have ever said that before? <laughs> or he says, I've been at work all day solving everyone else's problems. Don't I deserve some peace and quiet? So you're seeing the building here. Number four, demanding. Once we believe we deserve something, we feel perfectly justified in demanding it. Now I've demanded this. I deserve this. I have a right to this. We tack that desire onto our personal bill of rights and get ready to take our case to the highest court in the land. In our defense, we might even throw in our own personal interpretation of the Bible. Ooh, we do that with some skill, don't we? I deserve this because scripture says this on this page and this book and that verse. <clears throat> He's supposed to understand me and meet my need to talk. He's supposed to live with me in an understanding way. Hello, understanding me would mean that you're going to talk with me right now. Because we know what scripture tells our husbands to do. And we can use that scripture against them very, very skillfully by entirely ignoring the fact that we have a sinful, lustful desire in our hearts. 
He might say, if she was respectfully submissive, she'd give me some space. So, you know, whatever's going on in our mind can very likely the opposite be going on in his mind at the same time. So number five, dependence. Underneath this escalating war, the heart is exposed as depending on the thing desired. So now we depend on it. We can't survive without it. We can't be happy without it. It is no longer I want or even that I need. It becomes I must have. And if I don't get it, then there's going to be war. My peace and joy depend on him talking to me. Or for him, his peace and joy would be dependent on her leaving him alone for a few minutes of quiet. So then we have number six, deification. This is elevating ourselves to a God in our own mind. <clears throat> this dependency reveals that we have deified ourselves and our desire. My kingdom come. It's all about me and my kingdom now. My will be done on earth as it is in my imagination. We elevate ourselves and our cravings to the status of an idol or a false god. We become willing to sacrifice everything, our peace, our obedience, even our spouse on its altar. We bow to this idol as our source and demand that others bow as well. Because this is our idol, we must have it, and we now demand that our husband bow to the same idol. And if he does not, there is no peace in the house. And only if he bows to the same idol that I'm bowing to will there be peace, ultimately. Some Christian husband you are, what a hypocrite. Or he might say, some wife, how long since you read Proverbs 31? <laughs> Woohoo! All right, so then last one here is number seven. Then we have destruction. That which our heart deifies eventually destroys our relationships, and it destroys us as well. Of course, the only power a false god has is the power we give it. But when we empower false gods, we turn from the true God and enter into a lie and a destructively foolish way of life. Apart from repentance, idol worship fuels a warfare that becomes a habitual way of living. And that's what we want to avoid. We do not want a habitual way of living in conflict because we are ultimately worshiping our own lusts and desires. <clears throat> like a despot who destroys the nation around him to keep his hold on power, we are willing to lay waste to the very foundation of our marriage in order to satisfy our deified cravings. And we don't like, I liked his description. That was kind of lengthy, but I like his description because I think it helps to break it down so that we can truly see what are the steps of our desire and to see how deep it really is. And really, ultimately, like when we take apart all the layers to see what is driving our conflicts, it's really helpful to realize the level to which we will go in order to get our own way. And we think it was only children 
The problem is, yeah, children want their own way as well, but we have years and years and years of practice to, to work our own way, even against our husband. <clears throat> Once we arrive at a conflict, there can be several sinful ways we try to resolve the conflict. So keep in mind that by the time we get to the conflict, we have already entered into sinfulness. So unless we quickly repent and turn from our sinful attitude, we will continue down the path of sinfulness in our effort to resolve the conflict. So basically what we've had, what those steps that we went through, that's how we get to the really the beginning of the conflict ultimately. So all these things happen in a matter of like split seconds. And then all of a sudden, we're in the middle of a conflict or entering into a conflict with our husband. <clears throat> so be on your outline. Three common sinful responses to conflict. So once we get there, okay, we have, de- we have discovered that we have desire in our hearts to have our own way. So everything is set up perfectly for a sinful conflict. We have already entered into sin over this thing that we want because there's already idolatry in our hearts. So how are we going to respond? So this is what I want you to see here. The three common sinful responses to conflict. So what does that look like? Because we handle conflict differently based on personality, experience, preference, all these things. So what are some of those ways that we enter into conflict wrongly? So, and keep in mind, like I already said, that once we have gotten to this point, we're already in sin. So the only way out is to repent at this point. If we don't repent, we're gonna probably go down one of these three roads. So. Uh, we have three sinful responses. Number one is escape, number two is ignore, and number three is attack. So within each of these three responses are additional expressions of sinfulness. So number one I said was escape or avoidance. So some of us, we don't like conflict. So we're going to do whatever we can to avoid having a conflict. Some of you are good with that. Some of you would rather die than have a conflict. So A is denial. I'm sinful. I have the idolatry in my heart, all of this, but I do not want to have an all-out war, so I'm just going to deny, and that'll take care of it. So that is to pretend that it doesn't exist or simply refuse to do what needs to be done. So this can include the proverbial elephant in the room, right? Like everybody knows there's a problem, but I'm denying it because I don't want to deal with it. B is flight, run away, leave the situation. So you might, rather than entering into like a battle of words, an argument, you might leave the room, you might leave the house, um, whatever you need to do to, to escape, get away from whoever you're having that with. And in this case, we're talking about our husbands. So sometimes this can be appropriate for a brief period of time to pray, to repent, to gather your thoughts before you come back and try and deal biblically with your sinful attitude. And one other case as well, because we kind of have to give these caveats, right? 
um, it can be necessary in an abuse situation to leave the situation. But I would say that that is very uncommon. And so we're not talking about that. We're talking about just, I don't want to deal with this, so I'd rather get out of the room and I'm not going to talk to you about it. So C, some of us would rather just keep quiet. This is an unwillingness to discuss the issue. So when your husband says, what's wrong? And your response is, nothing, nothing. I'm not going to talk to you about it, nothing. It's a lie. Just, just saying. You're not just only keeping quiet. You don't only have an idol, but now you're a lying idolater. <laughs> so D, stay away from each other. So maybe you would sleep in separate rooms. Your husband sleeps on the couch. Maybe you sleep on the couch because you're so mad. Have you ever had those nights when you go to bed and you're angry with each other and you can't resolve it, and so you're going to show him and you're just going to leave and go sleep on the couch? Maybe he does the same thing. Um, sometimes maybe even go to your parents' house. <clears throat> and then this one, avoiding sexual intimacy because we're going to have to deal with the conflict, and I don't want to deal with the conflict, so I'm not, I'm not having sex. Too bad for you. E, hide information, sins or bitterness. This involves deception, dishonesty. If you know the other person is going to become angry, you may avoid giving all the facts to keep the conflict from escalating. You also may hide information because you don't want to hurt your spouse or disappoint them. There's... Like, we could just keep going on and on with this list. There's so many options of ways that we might respond wrong, wrongly to the possibility of a conflict. Uh, so number two on your outline, you might just rather ignore the conflict altogether. So you're not necessarily trying to escape it, but you're just going to pretend like it never happened. So A, just give it time to heal. Let time heal it. However, time alone cannot heal. What does it do? It sits in your heart and it festers and it tends to get worse, not better. What is needed is confession, forgiveness, and repentance. Stuart Scott wrote this, usually another sin and our hurts become bigger, not smaller with the passage of time. B, we can try to bury it. Trying to forget or stay busy so you don't have time to think about it. This often results, again, in bitterness and resentment rather than forgiveness and healing. C, we can just pretend it never happened. This is similar to denial and can be very frustrating to your husband if he would like to resolve the conflict. If you just deny it and pretend it never happened. It can be the result of laziness. We just don't want to deal with it. We don't want to take the time. We don't want to put forth the energy. It's going to be hard. You don't like dealing with it. Sometimes that can be motivated by fear. I think fear and laziness can play into a lot of different ones here, but anyway, I just included it right here. So you are afraid of being vulnerable or getting hurt, so you just pretend like it didn't happen rather than digging in and really working through it. And then D... Wait for the other person to initiate the resolution process. So in this case, it would be our husband, right? So we don't want to be the one to humble ourselves and try and work through it. So we're just going to wait for him to do it. How many of you have given your husband the cold shoulder for a few days or a few hours or whatever it is because 
if we're going to work through this, he's going to come to me about it. This is disobedient to scripture that tells us to go and seek to resolve the conflict. Yeah, we just can't escape like this is, we're just, it's getting us all. <laughs> because there's just no, there's no right way. I mean, in our sinfulness and our desire to escape the conflict, there's no right way to do this. The only way forward is repentance and confession and asking for forgiveness. <clears throat> so Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. This is so important, and it requires humility on our part to do that. And yet, why would we go on for hours or a day or a week, however long some of us stubborn people can be? Why would we be that, that way, be that stubborn, when we can go and humble ourselves and work it out with our husband and have it all resolved in a matter of maybe a few minutes or an hour or two? That's where we need to cry out and ask the Lord to help us to be humble. And really, like, what is, what is it that's going to drive that humility? Ultimately, it's our desire that God would be honored and glorified in our lives. We can never separate any of that from our desire to bring Him honor and glory. Because if we are desiring Him to be glorified, we're going to be much quicker to be humble and go to our husband's. So number three, the last one here, uh, is attack. So depending on your personality or, you know, what you grew up being familiar with, if there's a conflict, perhaps you saw your whole life when your mom had a conflict, she got angry and she, she went on attack mode. So if that is what is common to you, maybe that's all you've ever known. And so that's what's normal for you to do that. A is verbal attacks. Yelling, screaming, shouting. We want to believe that these kinds of responses don't take place in Christian marriages. But to be honest, that's really naive. Even Christians can yell and scream in an effort to get the other person to see things from their perspective. And sometimes if you feel like you're not heard, you feel like you can't make your point, then this just makes the attack get louder, more boisterous. And then it can even be, be physical violence, sometimes even using physical force such as hitting, pushing, slapping. These are all entirely unacceptable, very sinful responses. And yet, Christians can do this just as much as unbelievers, and we need to repent, and we need to get help if, if we need accountability with this so that we can respond rightly. Both of these can be used as a method of intimidation. By bullying the other person, I can get what I want and solve the conflict my way. Because ultimately, that's what we're trying to get is our own way, right? So we're just using whatever method we can to basically try and get what we want. And that's where basically the bullying comes in with the screaming or the slapping or whatever to get my own way. These are clear representations of selfishness with an absolute lack of self-control. So I didn't know exactly where else to put this, but I felt like I needed to include this. So C is crying or manipulation. 
So basically trying to get your husband to give you your own way by making him feel sorry for you. I'm not sure that's necessarily attack, but I do think that this can also tend to be a common way to get our own way. And my sister, one of my sisters actually, this was her method when she got married. And my brother-in-law and her would get into a conflict and this is what she would do. She would cry. Well, she'd always done this our whole lives. And so we didn't think anything of the fact that she would just cry when she didn't get her own way. And so she told me one time on the phone, she's like, yeah, he told me I'm not allowed to cry anymore. I was horrified. My sister's not allowed to cry. Well, he could see what I totally could not see. <laughs> it was total manipulation to get him to feel sorry for her so basically she could get her own way. He was the best thing ever for her <laughs> because she wasn't allowed to use her tactic anymore and she had to learn to work through it biblically. So it was a really great thing. But anyways, we have all different sinful ways that we might address conflict, and that's what we really want to avoid is all these sinful ways of doing this. So see on your outline, biblical explanation for why we have conflict. And we kind of already mentioned this from James, but I'm going to read it again, James 4, 1 through 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So he asks the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts? Well, that word source basically means the origin. What is the origin of your quarrels and conflicts? So again, that word conflict, well, we already had that lengthy definition, but a succinct definition is fight, battle, dispute. So this is what the conflict is. So what is the origin of your dispute or your argument, your fight? And then we have the word pleasure. Because he says, <clears throat> is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? So pleasure is sensual delight by implication, desire, lust, pleasure, a desire for pleasure, essentially. So that is, so the origin of our dispute is our desire for our own pleasures, whatever is going to make us happy in that moment. That's what drives the conflicts. So number one, strong desires we want to satisfy. The reason we have conflict is because we have strong desires we want to satisfy or fulfill. When those desires aren't satisfied to our liking, it results in conflict. We view the person who kept us from satisfying our desire as the enemy. So I have something that I want and my husband is not giving it to me. And so I view him as keeping me from getting my pleasure, whatever that would be in that moment. And now he is the enemy in my mind at that moment. And I am willing to be all kinds of sinful in order to fight to get that pleasure that I want in that moment. <clears throat> when, the, 
When both husband and wife are driven by their own lusts and desires, it will naturally result in conflict. When both spouses are vying for their own way, their own rights, their own expectations, their own needs, their own plans, the list could go on and on. When we're both fighting for those things, automatically there's going to be sinful conflict. So then here's the thing. Okay, so... Now you guys have learned you're not going to participate in the conflict anymore. So you're going to go home and now for some reason your husband has a pleasure he wants. What are you going to do? Because now he's going to be upset with you if you don't give him what you want. Are you going to enter in? Are you going to now join the conflict or are you going to respond rightly? Because here's where we get ourselves in trouble is then if he is responding in a way that he shouldn't be responding, a lot of times we just jump right in and enter into it instead of being willing to think about it biblically and to respond biblically. And that's what we need to be seeking to do. <clears throat> These desires that we were talking about, desires for our own way, they will result in conflict. Stuart Scott says, conflict happens when we must have something. When our goal becomes fulfilling our fleshly desires, we will have conflict. If Christians are going to successfully stop participating in battle, they must be able to recognize fleshly lusts. So this is your responsibility to begin to evaluate in your own heart. Do you recognize your fleshly lusts? When you end up in a position where you feel your emotions start to escalate, you feel your, um, the, the sinfulness really start to take root in your heart, are you able to evaluate what is driving your motives? That is critical if you are going to eliminate conflict from your marriage. You have to be able to identify what is driving your sinful desires. Because if you're oblivious to it, and this is the way a lot of our Christian society lives, where they don't take the time to evaluate, they don't take the time to meditate, to consider what are the things that are driving my desires? And do they please the Lord or are they strictly to please myself? And if they're strictly to please myself, then they are fleshly desires. They need to be repented of, they need to be confessed, and they need to be, our minds need to be renewed with the truth of scripture so that then we can have the right beliefs, the right feelings, the right thoughts, like he mentioned earlier. In the midst of conflict, you ask yourself, what is it am I wanting for myself? If we are going to avoid conflict, our desire has to be focused on the good of the other person rather than on ourselves. <clears throat> so 1 Corinthians 10.24 says, Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. And the thing is, like sometimes our desires are so habitual, we don't even recognize that they're there. We don't even recognize that we're actually seeking our own good rather than the good of our husband until all of a sudden now we're face to face with a conflict. But my hope is that if you end up in that place where all of a sudden it's like, whoa, we're having a conflict, you're going to be able to go, okay, let's just back up for a second. Give me a few minutes, honey. Let me think about this. <laughs> and then evaluate your heart and try and think through like, what is going on in my heart 
that has now got me to this point that I'm willing to go to battle to get what I want. So then Romans 12, 10 and 11 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And notice the effort that needs to go into that. So think about it from your husband. Be devoted to your husband in brotherly love. Give preference to your husband in honor. And then look at the effort. Not lagging behind in diligence. Like this needs to be something we are always seeking toward, giving him preference and brotherly love. And then it goes on to say fervent in spirit. We are working hard at this. Ultimately, why? It says serving the Lord, that God would be glorified. That's the root of it. That's what motivates and drives us. <clears throat> so number two, we need to change how we think about our desires. So I left the um, little table on your outline there, and that was taken from Stuart Scott. But I thought it was helpful, and I wanted you to be able to have it. <clears throat> so changing how we think about our desires and our spouse's desires is going to help us respond rightly to avoid conflict. So how we think, right? That always affects everything. So thoughts that lead to conflict. And you need to begin to recognize these thoughts and others like them so that you can basically nip them in the bud. So we have thought that leads to conflict. Well, that's ridiculous. His opinion, his idea, his preference, whatever it is. And instead, we need to be thinking, hmm, he may have a point. And you may not see it in that moment. You may not understand it in that moment. But you're giving him the benefit of the doubt in that moment. He may have a point. Uh, another sinful thought, I will have my way. Instead, we should be thinking, I don't have to have my way. And sometimes, even in little things, when you're really tired, when you don't feel well, whatever it is, those little things make us feel that we have to have our own way. When we're exhausted out of our minds, and yet, to remind yourself, you never have to have your own way. Christ didn't. And Christ went to the cross. He would have preferred to have that cut pass from him, right? And yet, he was willing to go to the cross for the will of the Father. We can be like Christ. In the little things we think we can, we do not ever have to have our own way. We might think, how dare he? Instead, we should pray for him. And we might think, I will not be treated this way. And instead, we need to say, how can I return good to him? So if he is sinful toward us, then we need to be thinking how we can do good. And you know what? Instead of always looking at our victim mentality, poor me, he doesn't treat me the way I want, do we ever stop to flip it around and go, how often do I not treat him the way he deserves? How often do I treat him badly and yet he does good to me even when I'm sinful? How often does he sacrifice for me when I don't deserve it? And so trying to put ourselves in his shoes to love him well. So think about our original list of differences. 
Consider in these differences how you could consider the good of your husband over yourself. So practical little things, right? You like it cold, he likes it warm, or vice versa. So what, what can you do to prefer him, to consider him as more important than yourself? Well, turn the thermostat up or down to please him. Put on a jacket, put on some shorts, whatever you need to do, but consider his preferences as more important than your own. Um, one person likes to listen to music in the car, the other person likes it quiet. Well, for me, that means listening to the music with a cheerful face because if my face is not cheerful, he knows I hate it. So, but these are very practical things, right? Preferring him above myself so that I'm not being so selfish in my own desires that now we've gone to blows over it. <clears throat> and we could keep going on. Um, keeping one keeps a tidy house, one's a little bit more messy. If you're the clean one and he is a little bit more messy, do you serve him with delight? Or does it just grate on your nerves and grate on your nerves? Or maybe you're the messy one and you grate on his nerves. Maybe you should start to pick things up a little bit more because that's what he prefers. <clears throat> we have to begin to delight in pleasing the other person even when it inconveniences us or goes against our preferences. Because ultimately, God is pleased when we are seeking to please the other person. And I actually was thinking about an example here because I think sometimes what happens, particularly in Christian circles, is that we want good things. We, we desire biblical things. We desire for our husbands to do biblical things. And then we end up desiring those things more than we should. And I know we've talked about that principle before, but I'm going to bring it up in this context of conflict because I think it's helpful. So sometimes the things we desire are good, even biblical things, but we cannot resort to sinful means to get them. Sometimes we justify our sinful attitudes, thoughts, words, and actions because what we want is a good biblical thing. So for example, a mom may want to have family worship and her husband is struggling to make that happen for whatever reason. Is that a good thing for a wife or a mom to want? Yeah, it's a good thing. Is it commanded in scripture? No, be careful. We do this a lot where we have things that principles and then we all of a sudden make them commands. We gotta be really careful. So it is a good thing though, or, and it can be a good thing. But if she becomes angry, frustrated, contentious, unkind or manipulative and all kinds of other things to get her husband to do it, she has not solved the problem. She has only caused what? A sinful conflict. She started out wanting a good thing, but then she crossed the line because she wanted it too much, and then she began to respond sinfully, which now brings husband and wife into conflict. So many wives are willing to act sinfully, which leads to a conflict, to get a good thing. But they move away from the will of God by wanting it too strongly, so think about the steps that led to the sinful conflict 
that we looked at earlier. So desire, deserve, demand, dependence. So we have that list of things. It started out as a good thing, a good desire. Desire can be neutral. Started out as a good desire, but then it grew and it grew and it grew until it was a sinful desire in her heart that she was willing to then uh, go into conflict, sinful conflict with her husband about it. <clears throat> then they tried to solve the conflict in sinful ways. So think about the three sinful ways to solve the conflict, whether it be escape, ignore, attack. Oh, that's, that's nice. Now we want to have family worship, and we've wanted it so much that now we've become angry and sinful over it, and now we're going to get verbally abusive over it because that ought to make good family devotions. We laugh, but how often is this what we resort to doing to get our own way? We cannot do that because God never, ever condones a sinful way of getting a good thing. Heavy breathing. When this is how we are responding, why would we think we are pleasing God? And yet, we can justify ourselves using Scripture to bear. We're that good. And why would we think God will answer our prayers to give us what we want? Why do we think that God would support us and take our side, because ultimately that's what we want God to do, right? I'm right, so God needs to do this because this is what I want. And think that instead that he would think badly of our husband and not, you know, we want God to take our side sometimes, which is sick and twisted. So think about our verse that we were just talking about in James, James 4. You lust and do not have. You cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Then you decide to ask God to give you what you want. So then the verse goes on to say, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you will spend it on your pleasures. So think through this. This is where it's really helpful to meditate on scripture because you take each line of the verse and you consider, so how is it that I am thinking wrongly or how is it that I am doing what this verse is describing, but starting to really think through the details of it. So... Uh, let me read that again. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. God does not answer your prayers to give you what you want because ultimately your motives are driven by spending it on your pleasures. Even good things like family devotions, you may wonder how could a desire for that possibly be for your pleasure, your sinful pleasure, your, your um, distorted lusts or desires? So I thought it might be helpful to give you a couple of questions to help you kind of think through, just so that you're tracking with me on this. So do you want to be able to tell your friends or others at church that you have family devos? Is there a level of pleasing people in your desire? Because if your husband isn't doing it, and he's the one that would lead that, and he's not doing it in this moment, what is God's will for your life in this moment? But when you become sinful about it, because you're not getting it, you have to evaluate what is going on. What is it that is in your pleasure that is sinful? And so evaluating, am I wanting just to be able to say, we have family worship? I know. 
my own heart is that corrupt. So I know I'm not the only one that likes to be able to have a little bit of, yeah, look at our family. <laughs> yeah, we, we do that. That's not a good motive to want family devotions. And I'm not saying that everybody's motives are that way. I'm just saying to start to think through what might lead to a sinful response when you don't get that. So does it give you a sense of comfort that your kids will trust Christ for salvation or that they will turn out okay because you have family worship? And I do think there is a measure of that. Are my kids going to know Christ for salvation if we never have family worship? Is God so small that he has to have family worship in order to save your children? So then what are you trusting in? You're trusting in family devotions. You're not trusting in the God who sent his son for, for our salvation. So you can see how quickly our pleasures become sinful. Are you placing your trust in the family worship more than you're putting it in God? Are you more inclined to trust in the activity of doing that or in God? When our trust is in the activity more than it is in God, if we don't have the activity that we're putting our trust in, what's going to happen? It's going to lead to conflict with the person who's not making it happen. And in this case, that's our husband. That's one example of wanting a good thing. And we have to then go through the work of other good things that you might desire that actually are, are motivated sinfully in your heart. And to evaluate those things, are you willing to rest in God's sovereignty in your life, regardless of whether you get some of these good things that you desire or not? Our motives can be so deceptive that we don't even see them for what they are. All of a sudden, we are in conflict with our husbands, and we don't know how we got there. We all know that it must be his fault because he isn't doing the godly thing. And yet, actually, it could be really our own issue. So I did put this on your outline. Keep this in mind. Sin never fixes anything or makes any situation better. If your husband is sinning, your sin will only aggravate it and make it worse. You are entirely responsible for your own responses, and sin is never an option. Never, ever, ever an option. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. God always gives us a way to avoid being sinful. And whatever the circumstances, we never have to respond in sinfulness. So I'm just going to kind of run through these last things here pretty quick. Um, but D is biblical ways to avoid conflict. So I'm not going to really get into a lot of explanation but I think that these are helpful just for you to think through them. And I am going to give you the verses so you can just write down the references. But uh, one, believe the best about your spouse. So 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love believes all things. 
So this is what you're doing before you get to the conflict. This is what you're doing to avoid even getting to the point of conflict, okay? So you haven't entered into sin yet. This is what you're gonna do to keep yourself from being sinful. So number two, gather plenty of data before speaking. Proverbs 18, 13, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Three, pray and think before you respond to the issue. Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Number four, listen more than you speak. Proverbs 10, 19, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Number five, speak truth in love. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And I would say when, we, when we're talking about speaking truth, don't exaggerate. Stick to the facts and then make sure your words are motivated by a love for your husband. Number six, keep your words from becoming weapons of destruction. Proverbs 12, 18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So you may be having a discussion with your husband and you are about to say something. Catch yourself before your words are mean. Catch yourself. You can say, you can communicate the same idea with words that are kind bite your tongue. Do not let them be mean or unkind. Change your tone and change your wording so that your words don't needlessly harm him. Number seven, do not be easily offended when listening. First Corinthians 13, five says love is not provoked and it does not take into account a wrong suffered. Number eight, make it your desire to seek peace. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then Romans 14, 19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And let me just clarify something real quick. Peace is not simply ignoring the conflict. Living with the elephant in the room that everyone is aware of, but no one will talk about is not peace. It is truly living in harmony. True peace is living in harmony together within the roles of Scripture so that God is glorified. It is a harmonious relationship together. If you have already entered into a conflict, what should you do biblically to resolve the conflict? Okay, so now we've moved into conflict and we realize, whoa, we should not be here. So what do we need to do? to respond rightly. So E, biblical ways to resolve conflict. So number one is evaluate your heart. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So we need to evaluate what is driving our desires. Number two, confess your sin to your spouse. So James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another. Number three, ask for forgiveness. 
Ask your husband to forgive you for the specific ways you disobeyed scripture. And you can look at those other verses and see ways that you were disobedient to scripture and be specific about it. Um, Own your specific sin. Please forgive me for speaking unkind words to you. Um, whatever it is, but be specific about it so that he can specifically forgive you for that thing. Number four, seek to understand your husband's point of view and be patient. Proverbs 20 verse five, a plan in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. If you don't understand what's going on in your husband, take the time to ask And I know sometimes as women, we can be a little bit maybe more in tune with what's going on with our emotions than our husbands. And that's that's somewhat stereotypical. So it's not always that way. In my home, that is that way. Because I can ask Craig, like, what's bothering you? What? And he won't even, I, I, I don't know. Like it can take him two days, three days to even realize, oh yeah, I think that's what's been bothering me. He just doesn't think about it. And it's not because he's trying to be deceptive. It's not... It's just the way he's wired. So be patient as you try and understand what's going on in his heart and don't be quickly offended. Number five, control or master your emotions and feelings. Proverbs 14:30. a tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. Number six, avoid being contentious, argumentative. Proverbs 21, 9. It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And then number seven, rest in God's sovereignty. And of course, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purposes. So try, and these are just a couple of last thoughts here, but try to find aspects within your differences that you do agree on. So you may, in in the big scheme of the whole discussion, maybe you disagree, but a lot of times there can be little things that you discover, oh, we actually do agree on that. Find those things. That will help as you try and resolve the bigger conflict. And if this is a larger difference in opinion, then agree to have more than one conversation. Maybe you need to talk about it once a week for a month or two before you come, like um, decisions for schooling your children or which college your kids are going to, you know, things like that that are bigger. You may need to have multiple conversations. Be willing to do that. It doesn't all have to be solved in that moment. Be patient. Um, And then F, um, differences of opinion can produce good. We often look at the differences and disagreements we have with our husbands as a negative thing, but they actually can be a good thing. And um, I'm not going to get into that because we need to end here, but I did give you guys that list at the end of your notes there to look and see some of the things that are a benefit to having differences of opinion because it really can act as iron sharpening iron in those differences, giving us a different perspective, helping us to have the opportunity to sacrifice of ourselves and, and various different things. So anyways, let me close in prayer and we will be done.